Next up, we have the Exposure Management Working Party. The focus of this working party is the research of management and modeling of accumulations of exposure. The working party currently consists of Hannes, Max, Bridget, Ronald, and myself. And we are, as the, as the reserving party mentioned earlier, we are continuously looking for um, additional members. So if anyone's interested, you're welcome to speak to any of us. Our presentation aims to show a high-level insights and preliminary results of some of the research that we have conducted so far. Great. Um, just before we start on the exposure management, so the research working parties, uh, we kicked them, we kicked it off last year at the at the stick convention, and we put forward four topics, um, and then we, I think, enough people was interested to get involved to to cover two to a reasonable extent. And we'll talk about some of the gaps um, in the research and further research for the next year. But I, um, I do want to encourage people to, to actually get involved. Um, if, if, the re if, if you sit there and you think the research is not that insightful, then maybe it's a good idea for, for you to, to bring your expertise and, uh, and questions. Also, I think what we want to try and do is um, get to a place as the, as the short-term insurance actuarial uh, fraternity grows to to be to to be in a position to have you know good opinions on important aspects and um, if you look at like the UK research it started small but the the whole convention is about working working parties and actually people in the industry getting together you know, debating the difficult issues and actually bringing some quality research um, so yeah that's what it's all about and we um, I think there was a, quite a few other topics in pricing and um, one or two others. But if also, if you do have an idea for research and you want to, um, you want to, uh, you know, get uh, kind of um, get more people involved or um, send out a communication or whatever that would be, then please talk to one of us afterwards. Um, we, you know, it'd be great to get you know two or three more working groups up and running for for next year's um, um, stick. Great, so I'm just going to give a, a short introduction um, and then I'll leave it to the other guys to, um, to talk through the, the different areas that we looked at. Um, but pretty much from an exposure management focus, it's the, from a capital perspective, obviously your catastrophe risk is a key, um, a key contribution to your kind of regulatory and economic capital. The, um, a cat risk or catastrophe risk, obviously, when, you, when we think about that, is an event that impacts you know, a whole portfolio or part of portfolio um, of policy simultaneously. And where I think actuaries, are, obviously, we, we're pretty good, um, our tools and what we do is pretty good at, at focusing on a risk pricing, so for specific risk. But it's actually in trying to, to, to understand the portfolio dynamics of writing a, a book of business. So I think the, the exposure management is, is that process where you manage and understand the financial impact of the exposures that you're writing. And, and that includes natural, you know, natural exposures as well as um, man-made exposures. So from kind of risk management guidebook, there's always the, kind of the four things you can do with risk. Um, and we think of avoidance, it's not from a property risk perspective or even if you think of credit, you know, a product that offers credit insurance, the, the, it's not easy to separate the cat risk or to avoid the catastrophe risk from, from writing that policy because the reason that people want to buy the policy is to cover those types of risks. 
So it's, it's, I would say exposure management techniques, um, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it, it, it's more aimed to understand the impact of, of writing a big book of business that have similar exposures. So obviously there's things like you can mitigate the risk through limiting the have a coverage restrictions on the policies, try and exclude certain things, um, etc. But again, it's, it, the focus is really to understand the cum cumulative um, impact. If we look at like the um, if we look at the the uh, quiz three results that's, that's obviously out for a while now. I think what's important to, to, to consider is that if you look at the results, the, the non-life capital component, just on, the, on an average basis, has in, obviously increased the capital significantly. Um, maybe not to the same extent as the life side, but what it means is pretty much that, at least for the short term, the economic, your economic capital is pretty much synonymous of your regulatory capital is it's how people manage it. Most people are going down the standard formula route. Um, and the catastrophe risk element of that is quite substantial. Um, the, just looking at the, um, if we look at kind of the, some of the underlying results, the, what, it, what is also interesting is uh, the, for, for instance, we'll talk quite a lot about data and the impact on capital, both, both on the economic and regulatory basis of having of modeling things on a different basis. Obviously on one extreme, you've got the factor-based calculation where, where the, the text from the FSB said, um, you know, it's somewhat more conservative. And if you try and run a scenario-based calculation through the factor-based calculation, you'll kind of realize that, that some, some a little bit uh, of fat is quite a lot more conservative, you know, maybe even up to three times more conservative, depending on your book of business. Um, so, you know, at one extreme, being able to just move from the factor-based calculation to a, uh, the scenario-based calculation, there's a massive impact on capital. And then when we actually, when we look at some of the interesting research that, that some of the guys have done in terms of just what impact it actually makes by just grouping data in different ways, both on a standard formula and an economic capital base, is really interesting. On the other, on the other side, the, what is also quite, um, you know, something that's quite easy to, um, or not, not to miss really, it's just that impact between the gross and the net, um, or the impact of the reinsurance and the, and the mitigation techniques. Um, it's just what I've circled there, if you look at the, like the, the, fire, the fire gross to net component, and you see how, what big impact the reinsurance has on the capital for South African insurance companies. Um, Bridget will talk a bit about you know, the, the proposed reinsurance reforms and, um, and how reinsurance actually price and not even just the impact on capital but just the impact on pricing and what premium insurance companies pay for their insurance and how that's impacted by data. Right, so I think that's all I want to say. I'll just do a bit of a wrap up at the end. But. Thanks, Hannes. All right, so I'm just going to give a quick overview of uh, the perils and just some considerations that you may make when considering um, how to model these perils and the exposure management impact that they may have. So one of the peak perils for South Africa is earthquake. Um, it's less frequent, although undoubtedly it's a major event if you consider the impact of um, an earthquake in a built-up urban area. So South Africa is exposed to both man-made earthquake in terms of the mining risks and the impact that those have, as well as some natural seismicity in the Cape. 
So in terms of the historical impact, the biggest ever was the, the famed series earthquake in 1969, I believe. Ah, oh, the summer of 69. <laughs> um, whereas you don't have to look too far um, in the past to see a real event that has occurred in terms of the Orkney event, which had a 5.5 moment uh, magnitude. The estimated loss in the industry was 90 to 140 million. So not catastrophic, um, but still a consideration, definitely in terms of the SAM impact. Hail is a bigger issue. Um, so high frequency, low severity, supposedly. Although, if you look at the, late, the latest history, in the last two years we've had three major hailstorms which have cost the industry in the billions of rands. So clearly that's more significant in terms of earnings volatility for a short-term insurer. Um, so in terms of the exposure management impact that that would have, clearly reducing your exposure to hail and understanding the impact of hail is very important. So this um, snapshot just looks at the difference in 10 years, the difference that 10 years could make in terms of how built up an area is. Um, so that's a major consideration for a hail peril. Um, so there's considerations that hail will not only affect a motor um, portfolio, but can also significantly affect a property portfolio, especially residential. Maybe not to the same, same degree, but it's still a significant impact. And with the accumulation of risks, this becomes more serious. So fortunately, you guys know all about flood, thanks to the, the presentation a little earlier. So we can model flood perfectly as long as we have uh, excellent geocoded data. So this is one of the cases where postal code information just isn't enough because it's not detailed enough. So the three types of flooding that we can consider are river flood, coastal flood, and surface flooding. So surface flooding is specifically flooding within built-up urban areas. And if you look at the change, again, within the last 10 or 11 years, um, so this is specifically Midrand, just look at how much it's changed in the last 11 years in terms of how built-up it is. Um, and that little graph on the side tries to just illustrate the impact of um, how urbanization increases the rates of flow and the amount of flooding that you would experience in an urban area. So it increases um, the maximum intensity of the flow and increases the devastation of the flood, potentially. So just using the historical impact of floods is clearly not sufficient in terms of modeling the ultimate um, outcome on, on your book, especially in the face of changing um, levels of uh, urbanization. Okay, and this just shows the, the connection between the acid mine water and, and earthquakes, especially small earthquakes. So with mines shutting down and not um, adhering to regulations and pumping out that acid mine water, that sitting acid mine water, both has an impact potentially on the frequency of small earthquakes um, as it sits there and builds up pressure, as well as the impact on pollution. So there is a, a working group which um, is part of ASA which has basically come to the conclusion that the, the pollution is not an issue anymore, but really the impact on seismicity um, is an impact. Okay, so that's just an overview of the perils and how those are changing. Um, so really the impact of data on capital is something that's not often explored. So obviously inadequate data has a huge impact on pricing and that's often where the emphasis is put within a short-term insurance company just because the, I guess the results are that much more tangible in terms of being able to obtain further profits. However, if we look on a risk-adjusted basis, clearly the capital component is just as important as the actual underwriting result component. And so 
In terms of data that insurance companies have in South Africa, so the majority of insurance companies for commercial corporate books might not have um, a list of all exposures when underwriting an account. So forget about detailed postal code data. That's very rare in terms of uh, commercial or corporate books. Um, so receiving a list of all the top exposures, um, so the underwriting or the maximum, the maximum loss that would be expected would be based on a key sum insured basis or um, probability of maximum loss type of basis and consider what, what's the maximum event that could happen in terms of scenario, scenario planning approach. And the rest of the exposure would effectively not have a location. So it might not have a location in terms of a postal code, and it might not even have any location. So it's sometimes the case where the entire exposure is listed on the company's head office um, location, and you don't really know where that exposure is over the entire country. Uh, so for example, the SAM formula for man-made fire basically looks at the concentration um, of properties or some insured within a 200 meter radius. So without geo-coded data, so that's borrowed directly from um, Solvency 2, without geo-coded data, how is it possible to quantify that? So for most insurers, it would be an educated guess, and for a lot of insurers, they would have completely ignored that and just looked at a factor-based um, methodology to quantify that. Okay, so clearly it's expensive to put a lot of effort in to obtain data if it's just for capital purposes where there's not immediate tangible be benefits. But on the flip side, your CAT modeling results are largely ineffective um, if you don't have good quality data. So there needs to be some sort of consistency between how the catastrophe model is, um, I guess the hazard component of the cat catastrophe model, how that's parameterized, and the data that's provided. There's no point in having a catastrophe model that's parameterized at a geocoded data and the inputs into that catastrophe model is at a cluster zone level. There's no value in that um, and vice versa. So an analysis of um, the 2004 hurricane season, so RMS showed that up to 45% of the difference between the modeled and the actual losses could actually be explained by insufficient data. So when they basically backfitted um, what the ultimate losses would have been if they had applied that catastrophe model during the 2004 hurricane season, a lot of it was just because they didn't have insufficient data. So the low resolution location data, to me is sort of the biggest one, beach prop, beachfront properties are identified only at a zip code level. So you can think of zip code as synonymous with a postal code level. So only at a zip code level meant that that, that was a data issue. So in South Africa, I think we'd be hard pressed to find an insurer that has got uh, good quality data over their commercial and corporate book at a zip code level or at a postal code level. So if the impact between zip code and geocoded data can be that big, the difference between zip code or postal code and Cresta zone level has the potential to be enormous. Okay, so just a quick insight into the standard formula calibration in terms of how earthquake risk was actually calibrated. And just to really highlight um, the impact of using the standard formula only, I guess, as, as a method of quantifying um, the total loss. So catastrophe models were used um, based on industry data which were at a postal code level. However, whether the models were run at a postal code level or at a Cresta zone level is, is not really certain. Um, so the market factor was basically what, what was the total overall 1 in 200 loss divided by the total exposure that was input. And then the relationship between the loss which different lines of business, different lines of businesses and different Cresta zones or standard formula zones had on that overall loss around that 1 in 200 Point. So basically a capital allocation exercise 
centered on that one in 200 point was used to determine the, the line of business, the relativities. So that works very well if you're an average insurer writing business over the entire country because you would expect that the formula reflects what your overall risk is. But it doesn't sufficiently penalize you if you have an overaccumulation of risk in one area um, and it doesn't allow for the fact that there's diversification benefits if you write more in other areas. So it's a rough but I guess a good um, approach. Okay, so that's just it doesn't expect the exposures by postal code. So you can input your exposures by at a crest zone level. So I'll, I'll get into that just now, what a crest zone level actually looks like. And specifically, this is a standard formula um, zone. It's not synonymous exactly with a crest zone. Um, and it currently only splits by residential, commercial, and buildings and contents. But it doesn't split by things which are very important in terms of the physical considerations. So the construction type, the number of stories, um, how old the building is, and those can have a huge impact on the overall uh, result. So basically what we're saying is ensure those Karoo properties, um, where the impact on, if you're just using a standard formula, to quantify the impact on your total book, means that if you're writing in areas which have a very low relativity, you're not going to be penalized, but again, that won't be a true reflection of what your catastrophe risk actually is. Okay, so that's just a look at what the crestor zones actually are. So these crestor zones are intended to represent areas which have a similar risk of catastrophe, um, well, similar characteristics. And, and as you can see, that they're very, very broad. So having information about the exposure and where you write your exposure just at this crestor zone level is not particularly that useful. Um, so there are specific areas for the metropolitan areas. So Cape Town, uh, Johannesburg split into three areas, and Durban. What the standard formula tries to do is effectively increase uh, the level of granularity on Cresta Zone 1 um, to give more information as to where the risk is really concentrated. Um, and this specifically relates to the south of Joburg, which has a very high relativity. But if you consider that under Cresta Zone 1, it's not really detailed enough. But that's not the only thing that the standard formula does. So it also groups areas which might be slightly outside of the metropolitan areas into areas which have a higher relativity. So this is the exposure profile. Um, so this is based on uh, the data set that we had, which is a commercial, it represents a large proportion um, of the commercial property market in South Africa. And it's split effectively by Cresta zone, as well as by standard formula zone. So just to reference back to the metropolitan areas, so Cresta zones um, 6, 8, and 9 are effectively the metropolitan areas of Johannesburg, Cape Town, um, and Durban. However, 5 and 7 are also, um, so 7 is the West Rand. Okay, and Pretoria. Okay, so what the standard formula does is it splits out the information that's effectively in Cresta zone 1 into standard formula zones. So you can see that 16% changes to uh, 2, which is standard formula zone 1, as well as standard formula zones 17, 18, and 19. So it splits out that exposure. But it also puts um, a lot of the, um, of the exposure back into the metropolitan areas, so information that you wouldn't effectively have. So the increase in Cresta zone 6 and standard formula zone 6 is 16 to 20%. The increase in the Cape area is 10 to 18%. And that's mostly from Cresta Zone 11, which is some of the Klein Karoo. 
And you can see that as the economic activity is effectively concentrated um, in areas which, has, uh, which have very high catastrophe loadings, um, this impact, I guess, is huge if you're writing a lot of business in areas which are not the economic centers, which, again, how feasible is that? Cool. That's all I wanted to cover. Okay, I'm just going to give a brief uh, overview of catastrophe models and the difference between the various vendor catastrophe models that are out there. And then I'll link back to an exercise that Max and I did on data granularity. So a catastrophe, each catastrophe model consists of an event set, which is a set of uh, possible future events, a hazard module, which stores the event information, such as the number of events, rate of occurrence, and the events and event intensity. The vulnerability module, which stores information on vulnerability curves used to calculate damage to a risk from an event, and the financial module, which, which calculates the event losses. So different vendor models will have, um, well, based, based on, a, on a similar, uh, well, the same set of data, different vendor models will produce different results. And the reason being is that, um, well, there are a number of reasons, there are just a few here. Uh, they could, different vendor models could have different event sets. And as Matt mentioned earlier, the event sets consist of historical events as, watch, as well as um, foreseeable future events. So as we'll see in the next slide, uh, some, some vendor models don't expect there to be really big uh, earthquakes in the future, whilst some do. Uh, vulnerability, sorry. vulnerability curves could be different. Um, Depending on how recently the model was updated, there could have been events in the recent future that have not been included in some, in some models. Uh, different models have different resolutions based on either Cresta or Postal Code. Uh, they could have different model lines in business. Some, some models don't model motor. And some models include demand surge, which is an increase in prices. Uh, for example, labor costs or the cost of, of parts to say vehicles following, following a major catastrophe. So this is just an example of two different vendor cap models which are currently in the market. This is based on the same set of data, uh, how different the results come out to be. So you'll see the, the model represented by the red curve doesn't expect very large, uh, this is an earthquake model by the way, they don't expect large earthquakes in the foreseeable future whereas the the model represented by the blue curve does. Um, and it just shows you how vastly different different CAP models can be, and you should never just base your decisions on the results of one CAP model. Then Max and I performed an exercise on granular, uh, data granularity. What we did is we took um, a data set consisting of quite a large group of uh, the commercial, commercial fire data, and we originally modeled the granular data based on the 16 Cresta zones, and then what we did is we grouped the data into the three major cities, so Durban, Cape Town, and Johannesburg, uh, just to show the, the impact of how important it is to have that granular data split out rather than to, to group your policy data into, the, into the, key, the same area as your key risk, basically. So the two, well, the blue line represents uh, the modeled results based on the granular data, and the red line represents the modeled results based on the group data. And as you can see, there's a, quite a significant difference between the two, two modeled results. 
The green triangle represents the standard formula result based on the granular data, and the purple square represents the standard formula result based on the group data. So as Max mentioned earlier, it may be an expensive exercise to, for insurance companies to gather more detailed data, but in terms of your capital allocation and your reinsurance decisions, it may be a worthwhile exercise. The reinsurance regulatory review was released earlier this year. I'm going to talk you through the main points where industry had concerns about the proposed changes. The first point is direct insurers need approval to conduct reinsurance business. The reason for this proposed change is to increase public disclosure. The South African insurance market provides inwards facultative reinsurance to the rest of Africa, so this change may make this business a lot more difficult to carry out. Composite reinsurance licenses are not allowed. This is to increase prudency. This is based on the fact that assets built to back investments products sold on the life license may be eroded by poor experience on the non-life license. This change would reduce diversification and may increase costs and therefore increase reinsurance premiums. No recognition of financial reinsurance in the SCR. The SCR um, only includes economic value of risk transfer. However, not allowing for any financial reinsurance does not necessarily reflect the true economic value of risk transfer, as some financial reinsurance can include a small element of risk transfer. Maximum session percentages may be implemented. So if you cede to a company within your group, you would be able to cede a maximum of 85% of your written premiums. But if you ceded to a company outside your group, you'd only be able to cede a maximum of 75% of your written premiums. This is to reduce fronting. However, this could increase capital charges, result in more costs, and also an unnatural risk appetite for insurance companies. This could mitigate the benefits of SAM by reducing a company's ability to retain the desired amount of risk. Remove the payers paid clause. This is to reduce cases where the payers paid clause is included without the client knowing. Payers paid clauses are an important part of commercial and corporate reinsurance structures where insurers may find it very difficult to pay large claims if a reinsurer does not first pay them the large capital amount. Direct insurers need to adjust reinsurance credit ratings in solvency calculations. The aim of this is to reduce the amount of business going offshore. The adjustments will vary according to whether a reinsurer is locally registered, locally registered with some sort of parental guarantee or something similar, is a branch of a foreign reinsurer, or is an insurance company. However, these adjustments are ad hoc to a certain degree, and they are, they are made to encourage insurers to reinsure with local reinsurance companies. The point of a credit rating is to reflect a company's paying a claims paying ability. So adjusting the credit ratings in an ad hoc ma manner may no longer truly reflect a company's ability to pay claims. This may impact insurers um, through their counterparty default risk in the SCR calculations. International reinsurers currently take a fair amount of South African risk, which we may not be able to keep in South Africa. South African losses are also very small on a global scale and provide diversification to global reinsurers. So by not allowing this, we may increase reinsurance premiums. Transparency and accessibility of information to reinsurers. 
This is to assist reinsurers in complying with governance, financial soundness, and reporting requirements under SAM. This is a very important point to reinsurance companies because they can only carry out their calculations based on the data that is provided to them. Following on from this point, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the impact of bad data on catastrophe excess of loss pricing. So catastrophe reinsurance is priced mainly using exposure data rather than experience data. This is because catastrophes have low frequency, so there's not necessarily a lot of past data to base calculations on. Changing weather patterns also reduce the, pred the redic predictive power of past data. Pricing techniques for catastrophe excess of last cover varies across the the industry, and companies are very sensitive in, in sharing how they carry out these calculations. But based on my research, there are two main methods used by companies, the first being catastrophe modeling, um, as covered by Carla. This is a more scientific method. And the second being exposure curves, which uses some insured information and probable maximum losses. And curves are fitted through these to get a, a result. Both these models produce a layer premium, which is equal to an expected layer loss and loadings for various items. The loadings are very subjective and vary across the industry. And these range from including risk loadings, profit margins, and expense ratios. But the element that we are most concerned about is the expected layer loss, as this is the result from the catastrophe model. If the data is of poor quality, then the expected layer loss will not necessarily be accurate. It is very difficult for reinsurers to adjust for poor quality data. So an example that Max mentioned where companies um, will have all their exposures under one head office postal code, um, this reduces the diversification benefit during a pricing exercise and can result in higher premiums for an insurance company. So in general, we're hoping that SAM will improve data quality and that insurers will be happy to share this better data with reinsurers as it can improve the accuracy of pricing and possibly reduce premiums going forward. So I think um, I mean, what the research has shown to date is that the, the quality of that data that comes into the modeling, both in the reinsurance um, and the capital side, can be, I mean, the, if you looked at that one graph, it was a massive difference. Um, so we, we kind of put our heads together and talked to a few people in the market, and this is probably an area that's where there could be further research. But if you think of where, where the market currently is at, we're probably safe to say that nearly, you know, the, the hangover of Bordreau data for direct insurers is probably coming to an end or is almost over with the fact that, you know, the insurer from a regulatory perspective would actually need to know what risks you're writing. kind of think you want to know that already, but... Um, the, I'd say the kind of PML, MFL type modeling based on limited number of locations is still prevalent for most of the big insurers writing corporate, corporate or commercial lines of business. Um, more sophisticated players are investing, cleaning and capturing data at location level. We'll show, I'll just show a couple of screenshots from a geocoding geo software that some people might be using. Um, and then again, when we think of the impact on capital based on what was said, um, you know, higher granularity of, of data for, for CAT models will likely result, result in lower capital results. So it's not necessarily the fact, obviously, that more, cap, more, more accurate will reduce, but given where we're at the moment, 
and the fact that when uh, how, what the data actually currently looks like that uh, in the aggregated form there's definitely I think it's probably more on the conservative side than um, you know actually adequately or inadequately pricing your insurance um, yeah so I can just read through that but uh, it's obviously on limiting factor there is a, there is a, there is a big cost an upfront cost in actually trying to get to a place where um, where data can be captured and systems actually allow for it and then also I think it's just uh, a change in market practice and insurers putting pressure on brokers to give them the data they actually need to manage their risks um, I think just a couple of screenshots from a, we, we looked at a couple of GIS models out there at the moment and hopefully the next year's research can do a bit more investigation into these types of models and the, and how easy and how useful it can be for insurers but I think from an underwriting perspective no underwriters would argue that it's not a very very good tool to actually understand your risks if you can plot um, in line with the presentation earlier if you can plot your data points in flood zones and actually understand where you are relative to the rest of the postcode even or zip code it it can be a, a, a very a very um, uh, important tool these are typical kind of things that people will do if they can capture their um, the data at that level that even within a cresta zone or a um, a postal code that you can actually identify certain areas that's probably more likely to flooding or others you know or, or others in the same area that's just maybe just 10 meters up a hill so it is a, I think that's a, that's a, obviously when the data um, level of data becomes you know thousands of locations probably difficult to do it for all the locations but it's probably worth looking at it for key areas right so some ongoing research and again if there's anyone interested and have ideas that can uh, contribute um, we've started looking at earthquake models and the impact of improved exposure data I think there's probably a lot more that we can do we've um, would, would it would be great if there's companies or people from companies that can contribute either by running some models in-house um, by running different scenarios so if, if you're interested come talk to us afterwards um, different pricing adjustment that's been made that Bridget was talking about earlier. Um, looking at different GIS systems and maybe even looking at um, how the market as a whole can get better quality data from brokers maybe. Um, there's obviously data initiatives such as Stride. Maybe there's something that can be done, a market-wide initiative in terms of corporate exposure data. Um, other CAT models, we haven't really touched that, but... The, it's kind of covered in the earlier presentation today um, but a hail model you know certain things that we can model certain things we can't It'd be interesting to look at what's there what research currently out there and then there's obviously the SAIA acid mine water research group that's still ongoing so um, where they going to look at more kind of seismic type risks so any there's lots lots of interesting things people can get involved in um, so yeah, please chat to us afterwards. And if you have any questions, you can ask them. Just take a bite of that uh, Lindt chocolate and maybe you'll think of a question. No questions, there's one down there. And I'm sure it's a difficult one. Okay, so this is, I guess, more a point to consider and maybe a question, yeah. I don't know. So um, in, in our experience, even though we have postal code data, um, it gets into our reinsurers as Cresta's own data. So, 
And then also with the standard formula, the factors are also only by crestosome or samzone. So if now we should invest in something even more granular than postal code data being the geolocation data, what advantage do we actually get? Um, aside from us knowing where our risks are, but if our catastrophe models are not going to work at that level, our reinsurers are not going to price at that level, and the standard formula capital is not going to reduce because we have data at that level, then where do, what's the advantage? Um, obviously from knowing, understanding your own risk, I think there's a big advantage. Um, there's obviously an advantage that if you know the standard formula factors and you think that you can pick better risks within a, a specific area, then that's an advantage. But I do think like from a reinsurer perspective, um, how they model their data or how they model that data, usually if insurers can prove to them they understand their data and they understand their risks, I do think there is a, uh, there is a uh, opening for negotiation. I don't know, Bridget can probably um, either validate that or not. But I, from under, for understanding your risk, I, I, you know, I think the better you can understand your risk, the better you can manage your business. So maybe not from a capital perspective initially, but again, you'd still be required to do an also and to understand, you know, have a view of how appropriate that formula is for, for your book of business. And without understanding the risk, it's quite hard to do that. I don't know if anyone else wants to add. Okay, so I, in terms of um, a, motor, a motor portfolio, I think you would agree that it's important to know where your cars are at any time of the day that you're insuring because of the impact could be you know, whatever it could be in terms of a hail event in the afternoon. You want to be able to make a post-loss assessment as quickly as possible. So I would say in terms of like a property portfolio as well, and to be able to make that post-loss assessment and to be quite confident that you don't have to set up um, a three billion rand reserve just in case um, when an earthquake happens somewhere is kind of comforting, I guess. Um, and then also from a yeah, from a more uh, technical perspective, to be able to model those perils at a more granular level. So I think CAP models are just, I guess, um, an interim solution, but eventually every company is going to have their own catastrophe model and going to have their own parameters and going to have their own models for uh, every type of peril across the book. Well, I would hope so, eventually. Um, so what that means is to have that extra information um, in both in terms of your event set as well as your projected outcome. So maybe it doesn't make that much difference for something like an earthquake, but I would say that for flood or for hail or for um, forest fires or other man-made type events, um, the impact could be huge. Um, definitely if we consider a sliding scale from geocoded data to Crestazone, I think that that's the way that everyone's going um, around the rest of the world. So. I think it's a good idea. Thanks, guys. Uh, I had to ask. Sorry. Um, just the, th the thought. So I'm not saying we should do it. As I said, it's very easy to sit in the audience and think up work, and I'd love to join, but oh, okay. Is it not so that many of us in the audience are going to go away, and we're going to build essentially a similar view for some of those perils in-house? Um, when we looked at a CAT model, and, and there's many ways to build a CAT model, the biggest problem you get into is that expert judgment area. That's your biggest problem. And the, the harsh reality is most of the insurers out there will not have the budget to appoint an engineer and a climatologist and a water engineer. You, you will never get there. 
So, and, and on the other side, we can't as a society build CAT models and promulgate them because that infringes on the commercial sensitivities for some of the reinsurers. Is there a compromise somewhere, and I'm just thinking out loud, you know, looking at some of the stuff that Matt has done, you know, even if we give guidance to a lot of the actuaries sitting in the room here to say that we've taken all the water collection basins, all the relative elevation, we've kind of mapped out key flooding zones, we've mapped out key hail zones. We don't have to prescribe what the charge is for those. But those who do geocoding can overlay them onto that map that's freely available for the profession to know that we are writing in a sensitive area and then track the capital charge later on. So as a stepping stone to help the entire industry moving to more granular data, we have to show some of the guys in the industry, the executives, the value of this. To construct it on our own, everyone individually, and there's more than 100 licenses in the industry, it takes a big budget. And I was thinking it's going to get tough to get there. So, so I see a lot of application for it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether it's something we should pursue or not. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, so, there actually has been like a, a bit of development in terms of like free, free or open source cat modeling software, which uh, has become a more popular in in Europe. Um, but definitely, in terms of coming, everybody coming up with their own parameters and their own view, I think that's that's probably unfeasible, except for the very, very small uh, localized type of perils, which some insurers might be subjected to. But absolutely. So if if the entire industry could somehow, um, I guess, promote that, that research outlook and that knowledge sharing um, to be able to create some sort of, some sort of almost industry-wide event set that anybody can access or an industry-wide, um, yeah, a geo, almost like a, like a geo map of, of where the perils are. And if we can team up with, let's say, weather essay or weather analytics or something and get that kind of information available because they have information about weather events for the last 100 years. You know, it's just about analyzing that and trying to understand patterns and how these are changing. Uh, I guess the same way that the Climatological Society does in the US and the um, NOA as well to try and predict what the eventual future number of events are going to be in each future year, those types of organizations. Um, of course, um, it's very dependent on, on funding. Um, but I guess that, yeah, I, I think it's very feasible in terms of everybody putting um, our, minds, our minds together to try and come up with a, a solution to understand those things which are at least more pertinent. So maybe not an earthquake because everybody thinks it's too extreme to really take seriously. But definitely in terms of hail, uh, where we come up with some sort of industry-wide hail model, I think it would be ext extremely beneficial just uh, to make that sort of academic literature which actually exists to make it uh, available to everybody because there's a lot of work that's actually been done on, on those types of things. So, so if, you want to if you want to volunteer someone on your team, obviously to join our working group, it would be uh, very, very good to get your input. And if you want to volunteer your data, I think that's the biggest issue, is that people aren't willing to freely volunteer their, their data that they have available, also not for the whole industry to see. So there are, there are a few barriers. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you.